0: Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking sangria. What do you have, Del?
1: I am drinking a white peach margarita, and on this week's episode, we are continuing the serial killer theme month as we look at the Axeman of New Orleans. This still unidentified killer terrorized New Orleans with a specific targeting of Italian immigrants and Italian Americans. The following accounts are from police reports and a collection of unsolved cases written by Helena Katz. Joseph Maggio and his wife Catherine were attacked on May 23, 1918 while sleeping alongside each other at their home on the corner of Upper Line and Magnolia Streets, where they conducted a broom and grocery. The killer broke into the home and then proceeded to cut the couple's throats with a straight razor. Upon leaving, he bashed their heads with an axe, perhaps in order to conceal the real cause of death. Joseph survived the attack, but died minutes after being discovered by his brothers, Jack and Andrew. In the apartment, law enforcement agents found the bloody clothes of the murderer as he had obviously changed into a clean set of clothes before fleeing the scene. A complete search of the premises was not conducted by the police after the bodies were removed, yet later the bloody razor was found on the lawn of a neighboring property. The razor used to kill the couple was found to belong to Joseph's brother, Andrew. Andrew became the police chief's prime suspect in the crime, yet was released after investigators were unable to break down his statement, as well as his account of an unknown man who was supposedly seen lurking near the residence prior to the murders. Louis Presumer and his mistress, Harriet Lowe, were attacked in the early morning hours on June 27, 1918, In the quarters at the back of his grocery store, which was located at the corner of Georgina and Harpe Streets, Bessemer was struck with a hatchet above his right temple, which resulted in a possible skull fracture. Lowe was hacked over the left ear and found unconscious when police arrived at the scene. The couple was discovered shortly after 7 a.m. on the morning of the attack by John Zanka, a driver of a bakery wagon who had come to the grocery in order to make a routine delivery. Zanka found both victims in a puddle of their own blood, both bleeding from their heads. The act, which had belonged to Presumer himself, was found in the bathroom of the apartment. He later stated to police that he had been sleeping when he was bashed with the hatchet. Almost immediately, police arrested potential suspect Louis Olbakan, a then 41-year-old African-American man who had been employed at the store just a week before the attacks. No evidence existed which could have proven the man guilty, yet police arrested him anyway, stating that he had offered conflicting accounts of his whereabouts on the morning of the attack. Obekan was later released as police was unable to gather enough evidence to hold him accountable for the crimes. Media attention soon turned to Pursumer himself as a series of letters written in German, Russian, and Yiddish were discovered in a trunk at the man's house. Police suspected that Bessemer was a
0: German spy and government officials began a full investigation of his potential espionage. Weeks later, after going in and out of consciousness, Harriet Lowe told the police that she thought Bessemer was in fact a German spy, which led to his immediate arrest. Two days later, Bessemer was released and two lead investigators of the case were demoted due to unacceptable police work. Bessemer was once again arrested in August 1918 after Harriet Lowe, who lay dying in Charity Hospital after a failed surgery, stated that it was he who had attacked her more than a month previously with his hatchet. Lowe died August 5, 1918, just two days after doctors performed surgery in an effort to repair her partially paralyzed face. He was charged with murder and served nine months in prison before being acquitted on May 1st, 1919 after a 10-minute jury deliberation. Anna Schneider was attacked in the early evening hours of August 5, 1918. The eight-month-pregnant 28-year-old of Elmira Street awoke to find a dark figure standing over her and was bashed in the face repeatedly. Her scalp had been cut open and her face was completely covered in blood. Mrs. Schneider was discovered after midnight by her husband Ed Schneider, who was returning late from work. Schneider claimed that she remembered nothing of the attack and gave birth to a healthy baby girl two days after the incident. Her husband told police that nothing was stolen from the house besides six or seven dollars that had been in his wallet. The windows and doors of the apartment appeared to have not been forced open and authorities came to the conclusion that the woman was most likely attacked with a lamp that had been on a nearby table. James Gleason, who police said was an ex-convict, was arrested shortly after Schneider was found. Gleason was later released due to a complete lack of evidence and stated that he originally ran from authorities because he had so often been arrested. Lead investigators began to publicly speculate that the attack was related to the previous incidents involving Bessemer and Maggio. Joseph Romano was an elderly man living with his two nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno. On August 10, 1918, Pauline and Mary awoke to the sound of a commotion in the adjoining room where their uncle resided. Upon entering the room, the sisters discovered that their uncle had taken a serious blow to his head, which resulted in two open cuts. The assailant was fleeing the scene as they arrived, yet the girls were able to distinguish that he was a dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and slouched hat. Romano, although seriously injured, was able to walk to the ambulance once it arrived, yet died two days later due to severe head trauma. The home had been ransacked, yet no items were stolen from Romano. Authorities found a bloody axe in the backyard and discovered that a panel on the back door had been chiseled away. The Romano murder created a state of extreme chaos in the city, with residents living in constant fear of an axe man attack. Police received a slew of reports in which citizens claimed to have seen an axe man lurking in New Orleans neighborhoods. A few men even called to report that they had found axes in their backyards.
1: Charles Corte Miaglia was an Italian immigrant who lived with his wife, Rosie, and infant daughter, Mary, on the corner of Jefferson Avenue and 2nd Street in Gretna, Louisiana, a New Orleans suburb across the Mississippi River. On the night of March 10th, 1919, screams were heard coming from the residence. Grocer Irlando Giordano rushed across the street to investigate. Upon his arrival, he noticed that Charles, his wife, and their daughter had all been attacked by an unknown intruder. Rosie stood in the doorway with a serious head wound, clutching her deceased daughter. Charles laid on the floor, bleeding profusely. The couple was rushed to Charity Hospital, where it was discovered they both had suffered skull fractures. Nothing was stolen from the house, but a panel on the back door had been chiseled away and a bloody axe was found on the back porch of the home. Charles was released two days later while his wife remained in the care of doctors. Upon gaining full consciousness, Rosie May claims that Giordano and his 18-year-old son Frank was responsible for the attacks. They were then charged with all of the Axman murders. The men would later be found guilty. Frank was sentenced to hang and his father to life in prison. Charles did divorce his wife after the trial, and almost a year later, Rosie announced that she had falsely accused the two out of jealousy and spite. Her statement was the only evidence against the Giordano's, and they were released from jail shortly thereafter. On March 13th, 1919, a letter purporting to be from the actman was published in the newspapers saying he would kill again at 15 past midnight on the night of March 19th, but would spare the occupants of any place where a jazz band was playing. He wrote, quote, now to be exact, at 1215 earthly time on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans in my infinite mercy. I'm going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going well, then so much the better for you people. One thing is certain. And that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. End quote. That night, all of New Orleans dance halls were filled to capacity and professional and amateur bands played jazz at parties at hundreds of houses across the town. There were no murders that night. Steve Boca was attacked in his bedroom as he slept by an axe-building intruder on August 10th, 1919. Boca awoke during the night to find a dark figure looming over his bed. Upon regaining consciousness, Boca ran across the street to investigate the intrusion and found that his head had been cracked open. The grocer ran to the house of his neighbor, Frank Junusa, where he lost consciousness again and collapsed. Nothing had been taken from the home, yet once again, a panel on the back door of the home had been chiseled away. Boca recovered from his injuries, but could not remember any details of the trauma.
0: Sarah Lauman was attacked on the night of September 3rd, 1919. Neighbors came to check on the young woman who had lived alone and broke into the home when Lauman did not answer. They discovered the 19-year-old lying unconscious on her bed, suffering from a severe head injury and missing several teeth. The intruder had entered the apartment through an open window and attacked the woman with a blunt object. A bloody axe was discovered on the front lawn of the building. Lauman recovered from her injuries, yet couldn't recall any details from the attack. On October 27, 1919, Mike Pepitone became the final victim. Mike Pepitone had been struck in the head and was covered in his own blood. Blood spatter covered the majority of the room, including a painting of the Virgin Mary. Mrs. Pepitone, the mother of six children, was unable to describe any characteristics of the killer. The Pepitone murder was the last of the alleged Axeman attacks. No one has been put forth as a credible suspect in this case. Many theories have been proposed as to a motive, including that the murders were done in order to popularize jazz music. The majority of the Axeman's victims were Italian immigrants or Italian Americans, leading many to believe that the crimes were ethnically motivated. Many media outlets sensationalized this aspect of the crimes, even suggesting mafia involvement despite lack of evidence. Some crime analysts have suggested that the crimes were related to sex and that the murderer was perhaps a sadist specifically seeking female victims. Criminologists Colin and Damon Wilson hypothesized that the Axeman killed male victims only when they obstructed his attempts to murder women, supported by cases in which the woman of the household was murdered, but not the man.
1: Jenny, what are your thoughts on the Axeman of New Orleans?
0: I would be so scared if I was living in New Orleans at the time. There's like nothing scarier to me than waking up and having just someone staring down at you. And what a brutal way to kill people. Everything seemed so random, which is to me why I'm inclined to say that I think it was different people. And I don't think these crimes were just all done by one person. I do think the mob was responsible for some. Um, There's evidence for the Pepitone murder, at least. And I do think they sort of did it under the guise of the man to help get away with it. It's really awful that two men were wrongfully accused and one was almost killed. So thankfully, that person came forward and said that they had lied about it. The killer's request to play jazz music is so creepy and definitely adds a touch of weirdness or like lore to this story. And it honestly does make it a better and more interesting story. And I find it interesting, too, that people think that these were done to popularize jazz music. I feel like that's very bizarre and not something I personally believe. It does seem like people were targeted, that it obviously was a lot of Italian Americans and Italian immigrants that were targeted. So you have to wonder if there was like a racial or ethnic background because... Uh, Historically, like Italian Americans have not necessarily been welcomed into the United States. I know things are a lot different now, but I think back when this was going on, that probably would still have been the case to an extent. And I think it's interesting too that they were wondering if it was women being targeted and the men just kind of got in the way. I've never heard anything like that described as like part of maybe like a criminal's mind. This is also another crime I don't think will be solved. And it's scary how it just stopped. It started and stopped so suddenly. What do you think, Del?
1: Yeah, I love New Orleans. And this is definitely one of the creepier aspects of a otherwise wonderful city. I think that when it comes to why they did it, I definitely agree that there was some anti-Italian sentiments that went into that. I do think it's strange that the killer used an axe that was already there. And back in the early 1900s, that was pretty common for people to have axes. So the question is kind of like, what came first? Did the person always know that they were going to use the axe or did they just see that and it became their MO? I agree with you. I don't think this crime is going to be solved. I think it's a situation of time. And the fact that the evidence that would be used to prove the culprit in this crime is likely far too degraded to be useful, even using modern technology. I think like a lot of the other unsolved crimes that we've talked about, it's always a question of why did the sudden start and stop happen? Is this a situation where they moved on to a different location? And those two sets of crime speeds weren't linked? Is it that they got arrested for a different crime? Did they die? So many unanswered questions. I definitely think that unsolved cases always have a sense of not being finished. And the Act of New Orleans is definitely a prime example of that, where you just want to understand more about why did these crimes happen? And Was there anything that the townspeople could do to really prevent it or protect themselves more? We won't be able to get answers to those questions. I agree with you that it is so creepy that the killer wanted everyone to play jazz music. I think that was a way of taunting people and really being able to terrorize them in another way. You know, just imagine like being. A jazz musician, and you know the reason why you are at someone's home that night is so a deranged lunatic doesn't come in and murder them with the axe. Like, I can't fathom what was going through their head. I also think that when it comes to the they were going to popularize jazz music through the murders. I definitely think that's a really big oxymoron. I don't think that murder can popularize music. If anything, it would have had the opposite effect where people would have associated a great genre of music with something really horrific. I think very similar to how many people see rap music as extremely violent. That could have happened with jazz music if this was something that was more widespread, where people were committing crimes in order to increase the number of people that was listening to it. So I definitely don't agree that that was the motive for these crimes. I do think there is some credence to what Colin and Damon Wilson were hypothesizing about the male victims being essentially collateral damage to what the murderer ultimately wanted to do, and that was kill women. We see this in a lot of cases where the woman gets a more brutal death and a lot more is done to them in horrific ways than the male victims are. So there is some credence to that theory, but honestly, I think that the main thing was that the murderer wanted to cause harm to the Italian community within New Orleans. So like we stated before, one of the main theories for motive of the Axeman of New Orleans is that the murders were a result of anti-Italian discrimination. Anti-Italianism arose among some Americans as a result of the large-scale immigration of Italians to the United States during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Nearly all the Italian immigrants were Roman Catholic, as opposed to the nation's Protestant majority. Because the immigrants often lacked formal education and competed with earlier immigrants for lower-paying jobs and housing, significant hostilities developed towards them. After the American Civil War, during the labor shortage that occurred as the South converted to free labor... Planters in southern states recruited Italians to come to the United States and work mainly as agricultural workers and laborers. Many soon found themselves the victim of prejudice and economic exploitation, and they were sometimes victims of violence. Anti-Italian stereotypes abounded during this period as a means of justifying the maltreatment of the immigrants. The plight of the Italian immigrant agricultural workers in Mississippi was so serious that the Italian embassy became involved in investigating their mistreatment. One of the largest mass lynchings in American history was the mass lynching of 11 Italians in New Orleans, Louisiana in 1891. The city had been the destination for numerous Italian immigrants shopkeepers were lynched because they had treated Blacks in their shop the same as Whites. A vigilante mob hanged five Italian-Americans, the three shopkeepers, and two bystanders during this incident. In 1920, two Italian immigrants, Sacco and Vansetti, were tried for robbery and murder in Boston, Massachusetts. Many historians agree that they were subjected to a mishandled trial and the judge, jury, and prosecution were biased against them because of their political views and Italian immigrant status. Judge Webster Thayer called Sacco and Mancetti quote-unquote Bolsheviki and said he would quote-unquote get them good and proper. In 1924, Thayer confronted a Massachusetts lawyer stating quote, Did you see what I did to those bastards the other day, end quote, the judge said. Despite worldwide protests, Sacco and Mancetti were eventually executed.
0: Anti-Italianism was part of the anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic ideology of the revived Ku Klux Klan, or the KKK, after 1915. The white supremacist and nativist group targeted Italians and other Southern Europeans, seeking to preserve the supposed dominance of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Since the early decades of the 20th century, Italian Americans have been portrayed with stereotypical characterizations. Stereotyping of Italian-Americans as being associated with organized crime has been a consistent feature of movies such as The Godfather, all three works in the series, Goodfellas and Casino, and TV programs such as The Sopranos. Such stereotypes of Italian-Americans are reinforced by the frequent replay of these movies and series on cable and network TV, video and board games, and TV and radio commercials with mafia themes also reinforce this stereotype. The entertainment media has stereotyped the Italian-American community as tolerant of violent, sociopathic gangsters. Other notable stereotypes portray Italian-Americans as overly aggressive and prone to violence. MTV's series The Jersey Shore was considered offensive by the Italian-American group Unico. A comprehensive study of Italian-American culture on film conducted from 1996 to 2001 by the Italic Institute of America revealed the extent of stereotyping in the media. More than two-thirds of the 2,000 films assessed in the study portray Italian-Americans in a negative light. Nearly 300 films featuring Italian-Americans as mobsters have been produced since The Godfather, an average of nine per year. According to the Italic Institute of America, quote, the mass media has consistently ignored five centuries of Italian-American history and has elevated what was never more than a minute subculture to the dominant Italian-American culture, end quote.
1: Jenny, are you surprised by the level of anti-Italian sentiment? And what are your thoughts on the media stereotyping Italians as all being involved or connected to organized crime?
0: I was pretty surprised to hear this stuff and I've been familiar with the anti-immigrant sentiment in like the 18 and 1900s but I didn't know how like violent things got with people being lynched And people going to the South to work and have agricultural jobs. A lot of this did kind of remind me of how Hispanic immigrants are treated now and, you know, getting these low paying jobs and then hostility gets developed towards them. There's always, you know, like some kind of group that has to be blamed. And I think that's probably in every society and culture blamed for the problems and it goes from group to group, person to person. And then it was Italians and other immigrants. And like I said, we see it now. still. I know that people have kind of joked about the stereotypes of Italian immigrants on TV and in the movies. But I mean, I think those statistics are pretty damning. And like, frankly, when I do think of like Italian Americans in film, I do think of things like The Godfather and Goodfellas, and there is a lot more to the culture. And I mean, Italian cinema is pretty groundbreaking and very, you know, stylistic and very well known. So it's kind of sad to see that. Like, there's so much more, like I'm saying, but then we're only capturing a small group of people a sensationalized version of things on film and that's not to say they're not the only people that have been negatively portrayed in the media not by any means i do remember the jersey shore criticism and being from new jersey dell and i i think this show also really portrayed a negative stereotype of new jersey too and most of the people from that show were not even from New Jersey. I do think most were Italian, but I know like Snooki, she's not Italian by blood, but she was raised in an Italian family. But if you think about it too, TV, MTV in particular, they really just want the most obnoxious, like loud partying people on these types of shows. So, I mean, they casted well for what they got and, they got what they wanted, really. This show has been like really long lasting. I think it's uh kind of having a revival at the moment. So, I mean, I don't think something like that is really doing more harm than good. But after that came out, there were a lot of like Italian-American kind of like New Jersey, like loudmouth people shows on. So, I don't know. I guess you can argue with whether or not it's that's all done more harm than good. What do you think, Del?
1: Yeah, I wasn't surprised too much about how anti-immigrant the America was. Definitely it's something that we see happening in cycles. Anytime there is a mass immigration of a particular group of people, you see this level of hostility. It's definitely something that I think doesn't get talked about enough, And I don't know whether it's the modern interpretation of Italians being white, and that is decreasing the level that people want to talk about it, but it's definitely something that puts a dark stain on just how we welcome people into this country. I definitely agree that you see a lot of the same things with the Hispanic community. In general, I think that a lot of times any group of people that comes in with a different culture and a culture they want to keep, they tend to have this backlash against them. When it comes to the media stereotypes of Italians, it's definitely something that is almost unavoidable if you're someone that consumes movies and television. I think that nearly everyone has seen a stereotypical mob movie and automatically thinks, okay, well, the main people in this movie are going to be Italians. Now, of course, we all know that when it comes to organized crime, it's not limited to those of Italian descent or Italian Americans. Crime is something that touches all communities. And so the fact that this particular type of crime has been tied to Italians in such a negative way is definitely a shame. And I definitely understand what the organizations that advocate for Italian Americans were saying when, you know, they spoke of Italian history essentially being ignored to focus on this very negative aspect of it. I'm not saying that there are no Italian mobsters, that would be false, but I think there are different ways to portray Italians outside of their connections to the mafia and other things around what Americans and specifically Hollywood thinks of Italians and their normal activities and how they feel about organized crime. Because I think these stereotypes not only say that, well... Italians are mobsters. It also says that the wider Italian community is okay with it. And I don't think that's fair to say that an entire community is okay with crime and thinks it's something that is cool or should be copied. I just don't think that's the case. I don't know if it's ever going to change, honestly. I think that it's become a well-ingrained stereotype that when you portray a mob movie or when you portray Italians in Hollywood and just the wider media sphere, that even if you're not doing a mob movie, you still drop hints that they are connected to the mob or have this wild ability to easily contact a mobster. I think it's absurd and very strange, but also not something that's likely going to change. The Axe Man of New Orleans was not the only still unidentified killer to use an axe as a murder weapon. Let's look at some other examples. We're going to start with the Velisca Axe Murders. The Velisca Axe Murders occurred between the evening of June 9, 1912 and the early morning of June 10, 1912 in the town of Velisca, Iowa. The six members of the Moore family and two guests were found bludgeoned in the Moore residence. The Moore family consisted of parents, Josiah and Sarah, and their four children, Herman, Mary, Arthur, and Paul. They were an affluent family, and the Moors were well-known and well-liked in their community. On June 9, 1912, Mary had invited her friends, Ina and Lena, to spend the night at the Moore residence. All eight victims, including the six children, had severe head wounds from an axe. Doctors concluded that the murders had taken place between midnight and 5 a.m. Two spent cigarettes in the attic suggested that the killer or killers patiently waited in the attic until the family and their guests were asleep. The murders began in the master bedroom where Josiah and Sarah were sleeping. Josiah received more blows from the axe than any other victim. His face had been cut to such an extent that his eyes were missing. A lengthy investigation yielded several suspects, one of whom was tried twice. In 1917, Reverend George Kelly was arrested for the Velisca murders. Police obtained a confession from him. However, it followed many hours of interrogation and Kelly later recounted. After two separate trials, he was acquitted. The first trial had ended in a hung jury and the second one ultimately ended in the acquittal.
0: Next, we'll look at the Hinterkaifeck murders. The Hinterkaifeck murders occurred on the evening of March 31st, 1922, when six people were murdered at a small Bavarian farmstead located approximately 70 kilometers or 43 miles north of Munich, Germany. The six victims were Andreas and Casilia, their widow daughter Victoria, Victoria's children Kazilia and Joseph, and the maid Maria Baumgartner. It appears that in the late evening, Victoria Gabriel, her seven-year-old daughter, Cazilia, and her parents, Andreas and Cazilia, were lured to the family barn through the stable where they were murdered one at a time. The perpetrator moved into the living quarters where, with the same murder weapon, he killed Joseph sleeping in his bassinet and Baumgartner in her bedchamber. Four days passed between the murders and the discovery of the bodies. On April 1st, coffee sellers Hans Shirovsky and Edward Shirovsky arrived in Kaifak to take an order. When no one responded to the knocks on the door and the window, they walked around the yard but found no one. They only noticed that the gate to the machine house was open before they decided to leave. Around 3.30 p.m., Lawrence Schlittenbauer sent his son Johan and stepson Joseph to hinterkaifach to see if they could make contact with the family. When they reported that they did not see anyone, Schlittenbauer headed to the farm the same day with Michael Pohl and Jacob Siegel. Entering the barn, they found the deceased remains. Shortly after, they found the victims murdered in the home. With no clear motive to be gleaned from the crime scene, the police began to formulate a list of suspects. Despite repeated arrests, no murderer has ever been found, and the files were closed in 1955. Nevertheless, the list interrogations took place in 1986.
1: The final case we're going to look at is the Servant Girl Annihilator. Between 1884 and 1885, the Servant Girl Annihilator terrorized Austin, Texas. According to Texas Monthly, the killer murdered seven women and one man. Additionally, the killer seriously injured six women and two men. All of the victims were attacked indoors while asleep in their beds. Five of the women were dragged unconscious but still alive and killed outdoors. Three of the women were severely mutilated while outdoors. All of the victims were pulled in a similar manner. Six of the murdered women had a quote unquote sharp object inserted into their ears. The series of murders stopped when additional police officers were hired, rewards were offered, and citizens formed a committee to patrol the streets at night. According to the New York Times, published on December 26, 1885, 400 men were arrested during the course of the year. And according to Texas Monthly, powerful elected officials refused to believe that one man or one group of men was responsible for all of the murders. Jenny, what are your thoughts on these other unsolved axe murders? There's something
0: so insane about killing someone with an axe. It does seem very old school and just one of the most brutal ways and violent ways to kill someone. It's interesting too that in at least the first two cases we talked about, like entire families were taken out this way. And I hadn't heard, the only one I had heard of was the German one. And just, it's so wild that they couldn't find anything to connect somebody to it. I wouldn't say that using an axe makes you like, less likely to like connect someone. But Del, like if you, what you were saying where a lot of people had axes at their home this time, you know, maybe people somewhat familiar with the families or the homes knew that was there, went in, used it, left. If this happened today, I don't know if we'd be able to more easily identify who the killer was because of things like DNA, fingerprints, which we really didn't have at the time of these three different crimes, but I think there's something kind of eerie about, I don't like an axe murderer too. It's not something we hear about anymore. So there's something different about hearing about these.
1: What do you think? I agree. I think that the fact that these cases all took place a very long time ago definitely speaks to the era that they were living in. And yes, I think that An ax is such a horrific way to kill someone and a very personal way as well. It's something where you are drenching yourself in your victim's blood, essentially, uh, when you're doing this. And so I definitely don't think that a person would be able to get away with it now. But I don't know if I can say that 100 percent because we see unsolved cases happening now. I do think that when it comes to all of these crimes, the fact that the police were so inept at solving them really speaks to how bad policing was back in the day and how bad they were at catching people that committed some of the most horrendous crimes. I feel like this comes up over and over again in a lot of these older unsolved cases where you start to think, okay, could this crime have been solved if it happened now? Could the police at the time have done something differently in order to solve them? And what did the people in the town think? I'm sure they were terrorized and scared. Did they start pointing fingers at other people? I know a lot of times they formed like vigilante mobs. But there's also no evidence that anything came from them. So were they just going after random people? Were they just using that as a form of protection? So, you know, we formed this vigilante mob to make sure that whoever the murderer is knows that there's going to be someone to kind of exact revenge on the behalf of victims. And I think you bring up a good point that two out of three of these cases were entire families. And I just start to think, like, how does that even happen where you have six, seven, eight people all murdered at the same time? And there's no evidence that there was any, like, defensive wounds on most of the victims. There's no sign that they tried to escape. I think that lends a lot of credence to the theories that for a lot of these, especially the mass murder uh, cases, that it was multiple people that went to the different rooms and that the murders was likely carried out very close to each other by these different people versus it being one person just going room to room committing these atrocities against these families and other individuals.
0: That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Man of New Orleans. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on Kenneth McDuff and the Broomstick Murders. As always, stay safe.